We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Sock Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Stop Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week are Nell Bradley. Hello. Jason Morton. Hello. And Pierre Lescoto. Hello. This week we are talking about uh, the police. The fuzz. The cops. The, the pigs. Five-o. The peelers, if you're from the UK. <laughs> uh, that's a historical reference. Um, I think specifically we're talking about the police in the U.S. and the militarization of the police in the U.S. Probably most of our listeners are aware, uh, if you've been keeping up with the news or with uh, with SOT.net or other uh, other news websites, uh, you're probably aware that um, there have been a lot of stories recently in the past few years of uh, the police kind of liberally beating heads of of liberals, especially liberals. (laughs) <laughs> but really, anybody there—they basically become a lot. Uh, it seems they've become a lot more uh, militarized and a lot more aggressive. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, actual fatal police arrests, and uh, if, that, if that's a proper term, where people Murders. where people have. Oh yeah, been, they uh, were they were arrested from living. Yeah. Uh, so this week, that's what, that's what we want to talk about and explore the uh, maybe the reason for it. Uh, was it always that way? Were police ever the kind of friendly neighborhood Bobby or a cop on on the beat type of thing? You could go to get your you know kitten rescued from a tree or to help your grandma across the street or something. Was that ever a reality, uh, or, or is that just a myth? And have cops always been well, what we back say in my today? day? Well, there's this there's this kind of problem with that kind of question, which is that human history is really long. And uh, obviously, like, you know, civilizations rise and fall, and they've all kind of had this, eventually they come up with the idea of having some kind of force of violent people who are going to enforce whatever rules are are put into place. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure Rome had roving gangs supporting the various different patrons Mm -hmm. here and there, you know. Well, I kind of meant in terms of, uh, you know, were they ever the friendly cop on the street type thing in, in, in kind of living memory in, in the sense that they're depicted in movies and stuff or, you know. Exactly, movies. Yeah, so. they're depicted in movies. Or maybe older people, uh, you know, have memories of police being yes. nice guys, in, particularly in the U.S., but also in the U.K. and maybe in France and different places. But definitely I think what we're saying is that if that was ever the case, then it certainly changed a lot in recent years. And uh, there, have been, there are a lot of reports, and it's not just because people have video cameras on their phones and can record them. That's not uh, a plausible explanation. Clearly, the police are becoming more militarized for a lot of different reasons, a lot more aggressive for the same reasons, maybe. And, um, and it's not the same as it used to be. So uh, the question is why? Um, maybe I'm going to play the devil's advocate so we don't have a one-sided argument. And... Uh, I don't have the good role because I'm going to try to give some legitimacy to police. So according to official history, the police fulfilled two major roles on a social level and almost on a civilizational level. A, the police is paid by the citizens to protect them. 
And the first examples of uh, police departments go back to the 17th century in France. And that was the official role given to police forces. Protect the citizen. And there is a second role that is almost civilizational in order to prevent the vicious circle of violence through vendetta that plagues Corsica or southern Italy, emerge a third party made of uh, police forces working hand-in-hand -hand with courts in order to prosecute and charge criminals. Thus, the victims don't have to make the justice by themselves. It prevents this uh, downward spiral of endless violence. <laughs> so these are the two very noble Right. <laughs> Roles of police according to official Just history. Before we get into this, I'd just like to say to our listeners that uh, if you are in the police force anywhere in the world, or if you know someone, if you have a family member, if you know someone, and you have some you know, inside information or a comment on this topic, uh, feel free to call in or to uh, write something on our chat room. So, so with, with, with that, what Joe is kind of saying, you know, obviously there are individuals you know, that have to be considered here, that there are some good people. I have known many police officers. I trained in Aikido with the, the many of the sheriff's department, and, and my teacher was the trainer at the, the sheriff's academy, at the police academy there. So I, many of them were very nice people, and I went to school with them. So as individuals, you take a police officer as an individual, they can be totally fine, but the police as a large institution, whether or not they are, uh, as Pierre was saying, there is this third party to prevent this Hatfields and McCoy type of vendetta system. I think that that's retroactive history. I think that very often people uh, uh, have read into history this massive, horrible crime wave that was going on until the police came and they they solved this problem and vendettas were, were were rampant and this whole world was in total chaos until the police came along and fixed everything. And m the majority of that evidence is completely anecdotal. It's, of course, absolutely reasonable to say those things if they're true. The problem is, is I don't think that there's sufficient evidence that, you know, the world was in total chaos and vendettas everybody and people were eye for an eyeing each other left and right and populations were completely decimated by this. And so the police came along and saved the day. I don't really think that <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds like a logical argument, except all the evidence for those those supported, you know, crime waves in the 16 and 1700s and. Uh, the dueling manias of that time are a little bit too anecdotal. There, there's obviously some evidence that it exists, but it continued far into uh, the future, and the police never actually bothered to fix any of those particular problems and still haven't today, so uh, there have been ultimate failures in that way. I think there is a need, though, for in any community, a need for some kind of uh, force of uh, uh, protection or, you know, some kind of a militarized in some form a uh, group of people who get together in any community but with the consent of the community to uh, to keep law and order let's say and to you know keep the well yeah but keep the anti-social kind of people sure. aspects of that community down stop anybody who might want to steal from the community that kind of thing i mean so that's totally totally logical except whose law and whose order well of the community of a community mm -hmm. well i mean like again you so you have the question of, of how a thing is uh, on paper and how it's actually ultimately implemented. Mm. Well, and, and the police, of course, do implement law and order, but whose law and whose order? Well, yeah. it's the, the law and order of uh, property and money people. Yeah, that's the problem. In the case of France. And so I'm saying in theory, the idea obviously is good. And in any, sure. in any community, let's just talk about a, 
idealized community, let's say, uh, where a group of people, whatever number of thousand people lived together, called themselves, you know, a group of people lived in town, whatever, had a name for the town, and were kind of relatively isolated in the sense that they maybe traded with other communities. But, you know, in that kind of community, there were, would arise probably a need for some kind of a police force of some description. Uh, so, I mean, I'm actually thinking here from my own kind of experience where in, um, in Northern Ireland, uh, during uh, during this, I think it was in the late 70s and uh, early 80s, it was a period of time there when uh, Belfast was kind of split between two two communities, you know, two kind of warring communities, officially the Catholics and the Protestants. And West Belfast was uh, was the kind of domain of the of the IRA, essentially the pro uh, Irish Republican kind of movement, and they had no representation in the in the actual police force in Northern Ireland. So. They basically established a no-go area in that in, in the entire west section of the city, a uh, no-no-go area for the police and the, and, the, and the army and the police and the army generally for a long period of time didn't go there, and all of the policing and justice was meted out by local paramilitaries, essentially local people from that area. If anybody was dealing or drug dealing, they dealt with it. And it worked well enough, you know. Right. But that they they weren't allowed to continue that very long because for some reason that was illegal. Um, and the actual established forces of law and order by the ruling authorities, by the elite, said that that's not allowed. It's illegal, and therefore they had to go in and because um, they set up barricades and stuff to yeah. stop the police getting in, and they broke down the barricades and you know broke into people's houses and stuff and dragged a bunch of people out and stuff. Um, so it actually, you know, that kind of thing has has a precedent and it works. But there seems to be this law in place in pretty much every country where. Yeah. A local community, a local group of people in any any country in the world would not be allowed by the authorities in that country to establish that, uh, to establish their own police force. The Ken McElroy story, yeah, uh, is kind of an example of yeah. when the FBI kind of came in and you know basically terrorized the entire town because you know mm-hmm. of what they had done. That they had taken law into their own hands. Taken law into their own hands because no one would help them. Yeah, I, I mean. Early early <coughs> but, policing. But, but, but my point there, right. just in saying that, actually you know, backs up the point that you are making about the origin or the genesis of the idea of a police force, that is to to serve the interests of or to do the bidding of a small elite in the country. And that's evidenced by the fact that any time anybody who has decided to set up their own police force is not allowed to do that. But it's hard to make an argument for why they would not be allowed to do that. If you have a town, for example, anywhere in America, say a town in Missouri or something, 15,000 people, kind of isolated, Imagine they just said, okay, we don't want the local police or the FBI. Nobody, no federal body is allowed in here at all. We're going to do our own policing, and that's it. Right. Uh, we take care of our own justice, all that business. Uh, they would very quickly be raided by some kind of an oh, FBI yeah. or Department of Homeland Security team yeah. who would like to send them on jail. Which doesn't, have any, doesn't make any rational sense, really, apart from right. the idea that, how dare you? Well, how good they... The, the, the IRA or the Irish kind of like Republican individuals in, in this West area of uh, Belfast worked because they kind of modeled themselves off of this idealized version of, of the modern police. Mm. And the way that things like this were taken care of in the, in the very, very olden days, we're talking about at the end of the 1700s into the early 1800s, was this concept of a night watch which were basically either volunteers or people who were actually in a community were being punished or something like that, who were supposed to basically watch at the gates or watch around the town for fires or any kind of mm. toward activity and ring an alarm or try to stop it. 
And, um, of course, that didn't really, you know, work too well. Most of them were, you know, sleeping on the job or drinking on the job. And so they, they kind of had these, these sort of roving kind of constables who were basically paid fees for going out and finding somebody or uh, delivering a warrant or whatever. But it was, it was quite costly. And the private business owners at the time, the mercantile industry was kind of building up and things were turning more to this, you know, industrialization. And so they got tired of the, the monetary investment of having to pay private individuals or private security companies, Pinkertons, things like that, to protect their property and their business. And there was all of these workers who were now very poor. The income divide was very big. There was this lower class. They were inferior and they were starting to riot and their riots would later become kind of like the union strikes and the businesses wanted and the businesses and rich people and they wanted this to stop. And so they convinced the governments to create a bureaucratic constabulary mm -hmm. kind of, I guess you could say a little bit monitored after what they called like the Philippine constables that the, mm -hmm. the Spanish implemented in the Philippines to go around and basically keep the local population, the restless natives from getting too restless. So effectively, it's a private police force then to serve the interests of a of Yeah, a, originally it was a private, and then they realized it's too expensive, and that because these sort of private security people were, you know, it just wasn't working out, they were too self-interested, they were mercenary, they created this bureaucratic organization that kind of like became to be known what we understand of as a police force, people who wear a uniform, who it's a job, they're permanent, it's not based on a fee, they serve war warrants from the magistracy. Uh, you know, et cetera, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So those types of things were basically created for something called social order, mm -hmm. not really law. It wasn't about criminals. They weren't interested in who was getting murdered. They weren't interested in who was, you know, prostituting or whatever. What they were interested in is preventing the poor disenfranchised classes from disturbing commerce in urban areas, mm -hmm. basically what it was, was pretty much about. And, of course, then that progressed further and further on to what we know of as the police today, which are people who go around carrying guns, wear uniforms, mm. and, it, and we even call them the forces of law and order, mm. you know, for that yeah. very reason. To keep order. In a... To keep order. More, more importantly about order, mm. you know, than law. Uh, hearing Joe's story about Belfast, he reminded me of a, of a memory in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, in a favelas, favelas are those... Uh, kind of Slum. district slums here for poor people. I mean, the poorest one, they live on the sidewalks, but if you're a bit less poor, you live in favelas. And uh, when you enter favelas, you're co-opted. You don't go there by yourself. You go there with a favelas guy. And when you enter, he will instruct you about what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say, who to talk to and not. And uh, even check your ID, stuff like that. And ask the guy... Uh, uh, but why, why all those uh, uh, recommendations? Uh, so what the media say is true. Uh, favelas are really dangerous. People there, poor people are really dangerous. They will cut my throat. I say, uh, no, all those measures are to protect you from the police. And actually, they're in this country that is highly unequal with a very rich and very poor coexisting in the same city, like Rio de Janeiro. You have two kinds of police or two kinds of order. You have the, the self-generated police or militia made by the favelas people to protect the favelas people. And you have the police, a state police, paid by, paid by the citizen to enforce the order defined by the elites. 
and that attacks the favelas people. So you have this coexistence of two very different movements, mm. antagonists. I think the problem here is that, um, based on, on how we introduced the show, I mean, you have one idea of the police, the force of law and order in a country who are there to ensure that the laws, the established laws in the, countries, the country are respected and ensure they're, they lean towards the kind of like the business classes and protecting their interests. I'm thinking here specifically of Occupy Wall Street uh, movement where the police went in basically and destroyed that entire movement in one night uh, because they were disrupting or attempting to disrupt, uh, for example, bankers going to work and, uh, and different things. So uh, in that sense, you can see how the police would just say, well, we, we have to do our job here. This is the way the country runs. This is how it works for good or bad. We can't have this kind of... Uh, push towards what they would uh, are being told is kind of anarchy or civil kind of chaos type of thing where the country is stopped from functioning on an economic level even uh, by the, the, the citizens. Uh, that's one thing, and you can maybe excuse the police for being a bit kind of like you know they're just taught to take orders and not to think and stuff, so they just do what they're told. If they see a bunch of people blockading a bank, and they're going to remove all those people. Oh, yeah. The other thing is. The militarization aspect of it and the police brutality is slightly different in the sense that you see people uh, taking just the um, the kind of uh, you know protecting the community, uh, taking it very far these days in the sense where they're busting into people's houses all across well, the US. Well, they're killing the community. And, yeah, for on the basis of but their justification is drugs, for example, a drug bus or you know somebody with a warrant out for his arrest, mm. and they just bust in and they do it in a very kind of heavy-handed, brutal way. Right. Um, but this isn't a new <clears throat> phenomenon. This has been this has been uh, uh, endemic to the police since the very beginning, because uh, the the wealthy people who 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 in the early police departments who basically funded the political campaigns were usually vice individuals. So I mean, the police were always very corrupt, and there have been you know commission after commission after commission investigating police corruption. 1960s, the Miranda rights. That came from this huge, massive police beating confessions out of people, mm-hmm. the civil rights movement, sicking dogs on people. I mean, the police are returning to their natural mode of action. There was this golden age of the police from, say, for instance, the 70s through to the early 90s, where the reaction from the public from the previous decades of police corruption and like the third degree, the whole term the third degree comes from the the un uh, the the uncivilized practices of police the police during interrogations beating confessions of the people uh, lying to them all this different activity that the reaction from the public in all of these commissions that were in up into the 60s and 70s was basically a new sets of rules and new rights like you know reaffirming the Fifth Amendment and uh, Fifth and Sixth Amendment and the right to an attorney and this became kind of like after the whole Miranda rights thing kind of enshrined really large and everybody was worried, oh, we're going to get sued, we're going to get sued. And then coming into the 90s, uh, people became more complacent. They thought that they had solved the police problem. And then this is where we see like the Rodney King thing, the L.A. riots, you know, there's various different situations. And now coming into now. So it's not like it's a new behavior for the police. It's actually they were on their best behavior Mm. for a short period in our history, which our generation takes for granted and thinks that it was always that way. Mm. 
And now they are returning to their original tactics, which is that they bust up protests, they beat people up, they force confessions, they shoot people, uh, they, they do all this violent, aggressive behavior, because that's what they have always done. So is, it, is there any element of, uh, or is it true to say that what we're dealing with here is simply a problem of human nature, and when you give someone authority, uh, tell them that they are, have the right, have the authority to go and you know use strong-arm tactics mm-hmm. on someone else, that... that Generally speaking, a, a human being, uh, especially a man, will uh, exploit that uh, directive or that uh, mandate. Well, that links into this sort of concept of authoritarians, <clears throat> mm-hmm. which is that uh, if you read Bob Altemeyer's book, The Authoritarians, which you can get on Amazon.com, he kind of talks about this, this section of the population, a rather large, disturbingly large section of the population that he refers to as right-wing authoritarians. And he says that while they are in, pri- in you know, private intercourse with people and social intercourse, they're quite sociable, they're nice, whatever. But boiling up under the surface, they have this desire to lash out, punish. They have this sort of innate sad- sadistic desire to, to punish people. And in various different psychological tests, they want to give people uh, unbelievably long and torturous sentences for small crimes. Uh, they believe that any violent act is justified against whatever minority they don't like, whether it's they were raised to not like homosexuals or blacks or Jews or whatever. And these individuals, when they are given uh, a position of power, they just can't help themselves mm. but to exploit it. So there is obviously a, a certain part of the population that we, that we kind of have discovered are called authoritarians, which are that way, and they are very attracted to police types of positions, police and military positions, because Mm -hmm. they love authority. Authority gives them the freedom to morally do things that are fundamentally to any normal human being utterly immoral, because they can then offload the moral responsibility onto their elite authorities, which are usually psychopathic individuals who love to see people suffer. They love to see violence. They love to see people sort of ground under the jackboots. But they never wear the jackboots themselves. I mean, you're never going to see Obama shooting somebody. You're never going to see Obama. But he'll find papers that will send out some authoritarians who will do it. Mm. And it just seems that it's like a symbiotic relationship between psychopaths and authoritarians. Mm. So, and there's also, uh, Altemeyer also talks about authoritarian followers. Well, that, that's what I'm talking about, the, the follower aspect and the... And the author- well, there's authoritarians who aspire to authority and aspire to <clears throat> wielding authority right, over right. people. And then people who uh, maybe don't feel themselves capable of wielding our authority, but right, are... Right, I didn't make well, that a separation. Yeah, well, 100% give people, um, give, give authoritarian types right. leeway to do whatever they want and will never criticize them, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, I've often thought about that <clears throat> concept of authoritarians, uh, or rather authoritarian followers, right. who will sanction uh, the, the worst deeds of, of the authorities, of their perceived authorities, um, simply because they are the authority, as... It's kind of like, um, you know, children uh, to parents, essentially. Right. You know, if you have a bunch of kids, imagine there's two parents uh, over looking over these uh, or taking care of these children. And uh, the parents are kind of maybe a bit abusive and stuff. But most of the kids will say, well, listen, we're only kids here. And uh, we're no good on our own. We can't kind of go out and look after ourselves and, and get all the stuff we need. And, yeah, they might be not being, you know, very nice to us and abusing us and being, you know, 
being authoritarian towards us, but ultimately, what are you going to do, you know? And uh, and then you have some kids amongst them, maybe a very small minority, who are saying, well, well, screw that. It doesn't matter how, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not we can't look after ourselves or whatever to some extent or you say. So the point is, we're being abused here and we need to do something about it. But they're kind of told to shut the hell up right. or we'll shop you to mom and dad uh, right. for, for rebelling, you know, because you're going to screw everything up here. Because if we lose these parents, what are we going to do? And that's their fundamental belief about themselves and about the world. And they will therefore always allow authority to do whatever the hell they want and will allow them to beat their, you know, they'll, you have stories of like parents kind of like, right. uh, or brothers or sisters, family members kind of, uh, you know, calling the cops on their, on, on a family member, you know, for, for not really a very uh, egregious crime or anything like that. Uh, you know, in terms of loyalty, there's no sense of loyalty among these people. There's only one lo- loyalty for them, and that's to... Well, I have a little story for that. I had, I, had a friend, I had a friend when he was about 16, he got in trouble. I won't say what he got in trouble for. In my opinion, it was not a crime. You know, it was basically an ecological problem. Mm. Uh, he had violated an ecological... He had thrown something into a river that uh, was not supposed to be put into a river, and for this, he was basically sent to a, what they call a juvenile detention center, which is basically a work camp for kids. It was crazy. He told me that basically all he did was work all day. So he got out, and he was on, I guess, what you would call a kind of a parole type of situation where he was let out a little bit early, and uh, he wasn't allowed to leave his property. Hmm. And uh, he was a skateboarder, and he had a driveway, and we used to go over to his house and skate in his driveway because that's all, that's everywhere he could go. He had to stay there something for like, you know, six months of this parole. So after about like five months of this, he got really bored. So he crossed the street and went to the parking lot right across the street. And while he was there, his mother called his, I guess you would call it a parole Parole officer. I think it's actually a different term when you're a juvenile. It's Mm. not quite the same term, but called this guy. And he had to go back. <laughs> I mean, his own mom wow. <laughs> turned him in. Mm. I mean, it's crazy. But on that topic, what I find very interesting about authoritarians, it's only anecdotal. I don't really have any proof to quote, but it seems to me that this is the case. That authoritarian followers are rather interesting in the fact that they are perhaps a little misnamed. Because it's not, it's not simply that the person is in a, in, a, in a position of authority that they will follow them. They seek out and choose authority figures who are intrinsically corrupt and malevolent, and they prefer those to the good ones. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting how, you know, if there is a good leader who comes along, they will reject him and they will go with the, you know, the Jerry Fowles and the Grams and the mm-hmm. highly puritanical, you know, whatever, corrupt individuals. They will choose those in favor because they know, I think that deep down they know because they have this inner sadism, deep down they know that it's with that person, with that particular authority figure, that they will be able to uh, give free reign to their desire to hurt and punish other people. Through that person. Through that person. Mm -hmm. That that person will remove the moral responsibilities from them. Uh, That's why they loved Hitler so much. That's why they... You know, it's not just that they're authoritarians. They'll follow any authority. Mm. If you tell them to be good, they'll be good. And t- as soon as a bad guy comes along, they'll support him, mm. even over an existing good authority, just because they know. They also may see it as a, as a sign of... Uh, they may actually be elevated in status the more kind of corrupt they are, uh, because you know they put them on a higher pedestal if they're able to get away with stuff, you know, if they get away with being, not only do they maybe give vent to the, the kind of 
the, the base kind of primal urges that ordinary authoritarian followers feel and they want to see someone else doing that kind of stuff but they also credit them with being able to do it and get away with it right. being good liars and stuff that's all kind of they're all status symbols to a certain right. extent for certain people you know wow he's really smart he's able to bullshit those people and get away with that stuff you know I like him you know I wish I could I, yeah I would love to be able to do that stuff so he's my hero basically because he's so corrupt and get, get away with shit that I can't right and uh, one fundamental point apparently is uh, Human beings, most human beings, need a figure of authority. They're good authority, they're bad authority. And uh, over the last decades, there seems to have been a shift. Initially, for, for a while, figure of authority came from the family. A lot of matters were settled within the family, or the tribe, or the community. More and more, this responsibility has been shifting towards a state that acts as a kind of surrogate father, mean father. And there is this, uh, this excerpt that uh, illustrates this point that I'm going to read now. Public education, movies, books, magazine articles, news channels, and public drama depict, depicted in reality shows and authority, authority glorifying TV shows that normalize appealing to a nameless servant of a cold and armed state to solve problems historically and naturally solved by family and friends. So the failure of family, for example, amongst many other, the level of unemployment, father having the job, not fulfilling his prime function of provider, ensuring material safety, laid the bed, prepared the ground for the emergence of this surrogate state, father. Well, I mean, this is kind of this is engineered in a certain sense, and this has kind of always yeah. been the program of of industrialization. That, that it has always been about, um, you know, mothers and fathers really are basically like a mother is as a broodmare for the industrial industrial society, the production, the workers, all this different stuff. So, in a certain sense, the failure and the collapse of a family has you know always been scheduled to be something that's going to happen. Um, it's undermined in, in, in so many different ways that it's very interesting. Um, the amount of state interference in the goings-on of a person's household is really is quite obscene in modern day. The, the ability of the police to enter your house, you know, tell you how to raise your kids. I mean, there was a story of the police coming and, and taking away, or social services coming and taking away this kid because he was overweight and they, the parents were apparently giving him a bad diet. This was in the UK. I mean, so all of this different stuff, the undermining of, of, uh, of the family has, has kind of obviously been, uh, I don't know if there's anything more to say on that except that it's basically, yeah, there we go. It's well, maybe accomplished. About this, I was thinking about this growing violence amongst uh, police forces that we are describing previously. And of course, there is this uh, ongoing polarization of society. One of, one of the hallmarks of psychopathy is violence, uh, i.e. suffering inflicting to others. It can be psychological, physical, and other aspects. It permeates all aspects of society, in media, growing violence, and uh, movies, and uh, in sports, and uh, wars, and of course, police forces. There's another factor, I think, as well. I can see this radicalization because there is a growing crisis and a growing chasm between the rich and the poor. If you don't have so much inequalities, you don't have to enforce, you don't have to use force if society is fair enough, balanced enough. 
over the last decade, you've seen this amazing differences in wealth. And sure, more and more the elites, we need a violent and massive army, because it's not police force anymore. We can call it domestic army. We need a domestic army to enforce always more unfairer and unfairer policies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> the whole austerity business uh, over the, since 2008 and the banking crisis and the bailouts and people's, <clears throat> particularly in the US, but also, particularly in, in Europe, but also in the US, uh, where uh, people's quality of life ha- has been uh, directly affected by these cuts to, uh, to public spending, to government spending on public uh, infrastructure and public services including unemployment benefit and child support and different things. Um, people have been protesting uh, in the streets, and this obviously has caught the attention of the elite, <clears throat> and they want to do something about it. And it's quite coincidental at, that at the same time, you have this militarization of the police force, but it's all kind of, um, it's all kind of interlinked to a certain extent. Uh, I suppose it's, you could say it's all the result of simply the greed of psychopaths in power, who want to suck as much of the wealth from the population up uh, to themselves, uh, and part of that, for example, is the <clears throat> part of that was the the war on terrorism, uh, the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, and so that's part of them trying to suck up as much resources uh, from the people around the world as possible, and obviously that that leads to. That was a, a war, in quotes, <clears throat> an invasion. You had thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, U.S. military personnel uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan killing people, shooting people, and they all come back home. So it's all done now. So they all come back home. So you've got a lot of kind of uh, battle-hardened troops coming back home. And according to uh, there was a, a report um, earlier this year that about military vets uh, coming back and joining law enforcement, and they say about 20% of them uh, join law enforcement, um, and they say, you know, in the in the report, uh, it's obviously quite positive. This isn't the kind of a. I'm not sure what the website was, but it wasn't a. It wasn't a dissenting voice. Uh, it was saying it was great because these guys are just what what the police need. You know, they they're they've got the skills, they've got the know-how. They can just create tra- a bunch of trigger-happy <coughs> Marines with PTSD. Yeah, they can transition very very easily. And well, they did say they they uh, kind of vet them for. Uh, psychological disorders but you know I suppose there's maybe a line there where it's like a fine line well consider a disorder he yeah kind of wants to kill people but probably won't do it so yeah rubber stamp that one get him in there he's a good shooter you know uh, so but they also say that um, they talk about uh, a generation ago uh, and p- police departments were giving preference to college graduates um, so but brains over brawn yeah but now they're saying, uh, while education is still a factor for police hiring, many agencies have learned that the education gained in military service may have a greater value to a police officer than a formal college education. So your ability to, you know, wield a gun against civilians uh, in Iraq, for example, proven experiences, yeah. proven experience in that regard, is preferable uh, when, than an education, a college yeah. education uh, for U.S. police forces now. Um, so... Yeah, this obviously causes a, a problem uh, for the ordinary people, but it's, it works quite well for the elite in their attempt to make sure that the people who are being increasingly abused and disenfranchised and having their wealth stripped away from them do not 
um, you know, do not rise up and, and try and do something about it. You know, that's what they're afraid of, it seems, you know. It's, well, uh, I think it's a double-edged sword. And why there's a growing chasm between the rich and the people, the rich and the poor, there's also a growing chasm within the poor people because there are basically two ways of reacting of this uh, unjustified and increasing violence. There are the authoritarian followers who come from to this authority, whatever illegitimate and violent it is, and you have people, while the level of unjustified violence, violence increases, that will open, open their eyes. Mm. And you can see it now, actually, in, uh, at least in Europe, there is a growing debate and a growing fracture within a society with a diminishing proportion of people who support the unsupportable violent regimes, and on the other side, you have a growing fraction of the population that start to, uh, to see what's going on. So much, because right now we're in a situation where in the US, the police budget total is $40 billion. You have people starving to death in the US and citizen tax goes to fund domestic armies that destroy the very people who fund them. So, no, but the point, the point is there that um, for every extra dollar that's given to policing and the force of law and order in the U.S., the dollar taken away from the, the essentially the poor and, and creates another poor person. Um, but then that, that's important because, you see, the force of law and order are there essentially to make sure that the poor people go out stealing from their neighbors. You see, so it's, uh, it's very important. It, some people might say it's a, it's a vicious circle that uh, spirals downwards and obviously it does but that's their logic behind it but obviously they're creating a situation where they where they it's a self-fulfilling prophecy you know right. the more you suck uh the the money away from the from the ordinary people per people the more you create is, a need for more police to deal with the poor people who have nothing else to do but go out and try and steal to keep themselves alive the thing is is in what you said there's an entire you know, there's an entire show's worth of discussion about why what you said is is the truth and why it is such a horrible situation and why the the whole of society is actually at least modern society, Western society, uh, with kind of this liberal, rugged individualist, scientific re- evolution-based thinking that basically poor people are to blame for it, that they are the kind of the rejects of evolution, mm-hmm. and so they kind of like justify that whole system. <clears throat> So, I mean, there's a whole lot of, of interesting reasons about why people think that. But what's more important is, how, uh, going back to this militarization thing, of the amount of propaganda from the police and from the media kind of portraying America and Americans as a whole bunch of militant, gun-toting psychos and that the police are running around getting shot at all the time and they have to have these extra weapons and they have to have these armored vehicles and they have to have these massive SWAT teams and these huge Darth Vader looking outfits to go around. And really what we see from the news and from all these instances of police shootings is that almost every single case, the use of police force of deadly force is 100% tactically unjustified by any reasonable standards. I mean, a guy mm-hmm. standing 20, 30, 40 feet away from you with a, 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 a flip folder knife that you can buy from Walmart does not need that you need to shoot him three or four times in the torso uh, with an assault rifle. 
I'm sorry, but even if you, I mean, here these guys are, there's like four or five, I'm talking about the shooting of the, the camping guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, all he had were these, these little tiny flip folder knives, and, and they shot the guy, and they had a guard dog, rubber bullets, and there's like four or five of these guys with assault rifles, you know, and grenade mm-hmm. launchers surrounding this guy, and, you know, he was just a little bit crazy, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, all of these police... They just misrepresent the dangers of the situations, and it kind of comes out of, you know, the sort of the gangland violence from mm-hmm. the 90s and portraying it as all of these gang members that have these Tech Nines and AK-47s, and they're running around shooting and, and all of this different stuff. And what we learn, of course, is that those, those gangs, inner-city gangs, were being used by, you know, the CIA, were actually created mm-hmm. uh, by the intelligence agencies in America for basically shipping drugs around for their black, their, their black uh, budget. budget projects. So we see that, like, you know, the military police are using the work of another part of the government to justify them yeah. becoming more militarized. Mm-hmm. It, it is just this constant vicious cycle that pushes itself around. It's total propaganda, and it's a total misrepresentation of the reality in America because we see on a daily basis that all of the cases that people are talking about a police brutality, we're talking about teenage girls getting tased in the head. We're talking about teenage girls getting punched, uh, young women being raped in the back of, uh, uh, of their, uh, of police SUVs for, for, for trumped up traffic violations, not even real traffic violations. There was a case of a 19 year old girl who got raped in the back of a police cruiser, um, because the guy said he thought her car was stolen. And it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's completely ridiculous. We've got people, the SWAT teams barging into the wrong house and shooting people, um, getting the address wrong uh, because they were going to raid somebody for buying organic fertilizer because they may or may not have been mm-hmm. growing marijuana. I think in, in one case they hadn't been. They just ordered organic fertilizer for their plants because they were a bit of a new age nut or something. So it's this, it also facilitates um, kind of deviant behavior among among a population that has been polarized because there's a kind of a phenomenon, a new phenomenon between online gamers, uh, or it's happened between a couple of on- online gamers where they, um, one of them, you know, doesn't like the other one. You know, they're playing in some kind of, uh, right. <clears throat> like a hooked up kind of game. Multiplayer game. Multiplayer yeah, game. And they... Uh, so one of them decided he would. Uh, he, he knew the address. He he could. He was able to fake a phone call right. as if to the police, uh, making it look like it came from this guy that he wanted to to, to attack, uh, like it came from his house. And he called the cops and said, "You know, I've just taken. I've just shot someone, and I've taken the rest of the prisoner. And if if you don't uh, do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to kill more people." And this was apparently coming from this other guy's house. So right. that just. You know, the, the 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 SWAT team was only too willing to jump into action there and bust down his door and right. tase the hell out of the guy. Right. Uh, so, I mean, the very fact that, I mean, they, they can be used and abused because they're so ready to do this. They can right. be used to actually yeah. by, by people who just want to have some fun type of thing on, in their terms, you know. Well, which is uh, really fundamentally sick. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I've got some some statistics here. Oh, yeah. Who wants to hear some? Yeah, let's hear some. We all, well, statistics are great. We're talking about increasing violence on on the cops' part. You kind of think, well, geez, it must be society itself that, you know, it must be at least reflected in the wider society. Crime must be up, right? Mm. In the U.S., you wouldn't know it from watching TV, but the FBI's own statistics show that crime, including violent crime, 
has been trending downwards, falling 20% from 1987 till today. I'm quoting something here. The job of a cop has become safer too, as the number of people killed by the number of police killed by gunfire is down 50 percent from 2012 to 2014. In fact, it's at its lowest level since 1887, a time when the population was 75 percent smaller than it is today. And yet, every 98 minutes, a dog is shot by a cop. Every 98 minutes. Well, I mean, some person might argue that the reason that crime is down is because the police are so violent, right? Yeah. But that comes into a very interesting point that I think is really fundamental to the entire issue. Police and society, both of them cannot be totally safe. Because with the decrease in the deaths of cops comes a, 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 an increase in the deaths of innocent civilians, and it's basically like one of us has to die in this situation. One of us has to live in danger. One of us is being paid to live in danger, and one of us isn't. One of us is paying the other. We pay police officers to mitigate dangerous situations to protect public safety. They, however, are more interested in their own safety, and therefore we have become less safe. We are dying more, and they are dying less. So what is the point of even having the police if they exist only to protect themselves? I have, I have an article here by Dave Lindorf, journalist, and he, he tracked down, he found a specific point in time when it was written into policy that instead of the primary motive for a cop being to protect and to serve, it was to protect officer safety, right. no matter what. And bit by bit, fleshing out the legislation in recent decades, let's say, they feel ever more confident to overstep the line because they know that they've got their backs covered. Well, because they're clad in body armor and they're, they're told they can shoot first and ask questions later. Right, but I mean, just look at this situation. Right? You have two men standing in a yard. Both of them are holding guns, right, and pointing them at each other. The one on the left shoots the one on the right in the head. What happens to the guy on the left? What has he done? Committed murder, right? The first person to shoot commits murder, right? Mm. The fact that the other guy was pointing a gun at him, or at least, you know, they might say it was self-defense, but you say that the, first, the, the one on the left killed the one on the right, boom, done, whatever. But if you put a badge on the guy's chest, suddenly it's a totally different story. We're talking about an entire group of individuals who are fundamentally above the basic laws of society. That is that when you shoot somebody preemptorily, you are committing a crime. But when you're wearing a badge and you do it, suddenly you're above the law. Well, the whole idea of the law, the whole idea of society, as we have theoretically and idealistically created it, is that nobody is above the law. But here we have police who are ostensibly above the law. And Joe just mentioned the full body armor worn more and more by police officers. And uh, Philip Zimbardo described in his book The Decipher Effect another psychological aspect of this uh, kind of masquerade. And he writes, A legitimate seeming authority figure donning masks or costumes, uniforms, badges, sunglasses, 
external symbols of authority were significantly more likely to torture, mutilate, and kill their enemies than warriors in cultures that didn't engage in self-disguise. So there seem to be two objectives with this militarization and those full-body armors to be more destructive, of course, but also to try to remove the last psychological obstacles between the officer and the most violent acts because of this anonymity mm. or this costume and the role attached to it. Mm. It's just, I find it very interesting the, the kind of the two kind of arguments or the two viewpoints uh, that would maybe explain this <coughs> militarization of the police force. Uh, one being that it's just kind of a a natural effect of the kind of polarization of society and um, uh, and also, you know, wars overseas and like we just mentioned, military coming back, joining the police force, being very trigger happy and uh, and also maybe just, you know, very corrupt social conditions where there's a lot more people in poverty and stuff who are forced to kind of do what they have to do what they can to kind of feed themselves and stuff and that ends up infringing the law, uh, in quotes. Or if it's in some way consciously planned, busted, busted wide open. Well, Con- like a conscious plan to um, prepare for upcoming events as the elite see it in terms of having this structure in place to deal with what they uh, believe uh, to be coming down the, the line, which is massive social unrest as a result of uh, and this is official because they have uh, the DOD and the Pentagon have funded studies and have project groups set up to look into the possibility of this happening and how they can mitigate it. Uh, and they've done it specifically in the context of um, major earth changes in the sense of uh, bigger and uh, more frequent hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, kind of uh, weather, bad weather. What are they going to do? Send in a SWAT team when the tornado arrives? No, it's for the result. It's for social unrest as a result of those things. So the point is, the question here is this, this question between whether it's uh, it's the result of something that has been uh, foreseen or is foreseen as coming down, which is major social unrest because of global warming or in quotes or whatever climate change. Uh, or if it's simply a, an organic result of the corruption of society from the top down, or maybe it's a bit of both. Yeah, it's a bit of both. I, I think it's both because history shows that uh, insurrection movements systematically follow at least economic and financial crisis. The French Revolution that had been instrumentalized, that's clear. However, there was a spontaneous insurrection as well that came from a shortage of bread in Paris. Yes, but that, that shortage of bread was partly engineered, partly engineered. But there was a there was an economic crisis as well because of harsh winters and uh, and here we we branch with the uh, uh, weather changes. And it, actually, what you describe, this process has been uh, described by uh, theorized by Gustave Le Bon in his book The Crowd, where he shows how crowds react to authorities. Mm. and reacted in general. And uh, what is fascinating is that crowds are primitive, intuitive, 
and radical, black and white. They don't work with logic, reasoning, analysis. They work, they react based on pictures and symbols. In a few words, very simple things, very simple triggers. And why do I mention that? Because it's obvious for people who have studied that, that we're going there. We're going towards a, a clash, not only between the rich and the poor, within the poles, as I described, between the, follower, the authoritarian followers and the insurrectives. And even within the police forces, you see the change in population, in police forces. You mentioned colleges, college graduates in the past and now more and more brute force. If, you see people leaving police forces, at least in Europe, more and more because they're disgusted with what is going on. And uh, you're going to have, sooner or later, with the pressure increasing, violent opposition between crowds and police. And here, I don't know, I don't have the, the answer, but on one side you have some police officers, hundreds of thousands maybe, with a lot of weapons, true. On the other side you have millions hundreds of millions in some countries of civilians, citizens, that, as described by Le Bon, can act as one body. There is kind of limbic resonance, and there is no more inhibition. There is no more fear. There is no more moral call. There is a, this black and white reaction that can be uh, totally unexpected. I think some people at the top see it coming. Yeah. How will it unfold? How will they cope, how will they cope with it? I have no idea. Well, what's kind of interesting on that topic of what you're saying is this old quote from a king of Sparta, and the rule for the Spartans was to never attack the same country twice within a certain number of years. And one of the kings came along, and he was greedy, and he kept invading, I think it was Athens or, or some other place around there, Corinth, I don't know. And he kept invading him, invading him, invading him, and finally, like after the seventh time, uh, the Spartans lost. And one of the guys said, you know, what a what a price we've paid to teach them how to fight. And so what we see with the, the, the elites right now is they keep grinding, they keep pushing this fear button with people. They keep grinding on it. And I, I wonder, I hope in a certain sense that people are going to start to develop a little bit more. And it seems like they are in a certain sense. They're beginning to develop an immunity to the fear mongering. And when that happens, when they are no longer afraid of this nebulous terrorist enemy, I mean, more people were killed between 2009, I mean, 2003 and 2009 in America by police officers than died on 9-11. I mean, you are, you are, I think, eight times more likely to die in America from a police officer than you are from a terrorist. I mean, yeah. probably even more. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, 5,000 people. Yeah, 5,000 people between 2003 and like 2009 or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the police in America are more dangerous than Arab terrorists, Islamic terrorists. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, I know that the culture that I grew up in in the 90s was highly anti-police. Um, and because I was a skateboarder, I was kind of outside. You know, I was always harassed by the police. They were always coming by and making threats and... They were always trying to pass these laws and ordinances to ticket, you know, skateboarders. So the, the culture that I grew up in was not positive about the police. And then 9-11 happened, and they were kind of heroicized a mm. little bit. But now I think that people are starting to realize what the police really are, what they represent, who they represent, the elites, the economic elites in every country. And they're beginning to see through the, the charade of nebulous, ambiguous terror threats 
and I, obviously I think false flag operations, people are becoming a little bit more aware of the fact that maybe these various governments are actually, you know, doing this to themselves for the specific purpose of, you know, raising fear. Mm-hmm. Well, that speaks to Joe's suggestion that the war on terror was always a smokescreen behind which this would be instituted. Mm-hmm. Well, that causes a, a conscious, <clears throat> a conscious controversy. Well, at, at the level of police forces being a kind of economic functionary, mm. as we discussed in the beginning, I didn't realize till reading up for the show that SWAT teams are at least partially funded by the proceeds they get from their raids. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's, it's nuts. Oh, you didn't know about police auctions? <laughs> well, police auctions is one thing, but... They will decide which house to raid based on the best <coughs> loot. The best loot. Going. So it's basically, it's getting to the point of, of piracy, essentially. Yeah. Well, it's not that it, No, no, this isn't getting to a point. This has been a strategy. This is from The Economist. So this is hardly an, a, it's hardly that's a left-wing... No. It's a recent article. Mission creep. America's police force are too militarized. That's, this is The Economist saying this. It's about the development of the SWAT teams. So a few cities had them in the 70s, and now every city in the U.S. has one, basically. Well, now, because of a legal quirk, SWAT raids can be profitable. The rules on civil asset forfeiture allow the police to seize anything which can plausibly, they can plausibly claim was the proceeds of a crime. <laughs> the property owner need not be convicted of that crime. If they find drugs in his house, they take his cash possibly the house too, and he must sue to get them back. And part of the reason they do this is because they depend on the proceeds Mm -hmm. for a large part of their budget. Well, there's there's another aspect to it in the sense that there isn't... um, It's it's just madness. There isn't the funding anymore. There isn't the the federal government funding or even local, um, local government funding for police forces anymore. There isn't enough money because, again, of the kind of, ultimately because of this banking crisis where basically all of the money was taken out of the entire country at all levels and funneled up into the the coffers of the elite. So the government then, having done that, having stripped the country of of its wealth and, and rendered police forces kind of ineffective or feeling like they don't have enough money for equipment and stuff to fight crime, they then turn around and say, well, listen, we've got all this surplus gear from the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, and we'll sell it to you. So take more money from local governments and, to, towards the, to, and funnel it towards the federal government and give the police essentially military equipment in small little towns. I mean, you're talking about towns that have no... Um, have no incident incidents of, of any kind of violent crime and have hardly even any robberies or anything like that. Like towns of fifteen thousand people getting uh you know uh they call MRAPs, yeah, mine resistant ambush protected vehicles. They're basically, you know, tanks essentially. They're the same as tanks because they're meant to withstand a, right. an explosion like a mine or a, an IED in, in Iraq. And these are now, you know uh you know, patrolling the streets of little quiet country towns in the US uh, I mean you have to ask what's it for if, if they do nothing with it fair enough but 
when you put it together with all of these studies that have been funded by the DOD, Pentagon, etc., into uh, mass civil unrest, essentially, and how they it need happened. an ambush-protected vehicle. Well, yeah, so th- they seem to be expecting this. You know, if right. you look at all of the studies that have been done, there's, there's actually a, there's a, res- a DOD research initiative called Minerva, uh, and uh, it was launched in 2008. And it, um, by the way, is the goddess of strategic warfare. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and it, it part of part of what it does is looks into how um, it's meant to improve it, the basic understanding of the social, cultural, behavioral, and political forces that uh, shape regions of the world and also the the local U.S. Uh, um, local U.S. society, and part of it is they they look into um, how social media is used, and they say this on the website, (laughs) that the fund of these studies into how social media is used, like Facebook and Twitter and stuff, how it's been used, and they cite kind of like the spring, Arab spring revolutions and stuff, but they they focus on the U.S. as well. They're trying to look at that to see how it would happen in the U.S., and I'm sure they know very well how it happens, but they still do the research and throw money at research into this anyway. And it ties into actually a story just from the past few days of how Facebook, they don't say necessarily that Facebook did it in league with the Department of Defense and the Pentagon, but they say that Facebook manipulated the feeds of, I think it was hundreds of thousands of, um, of Facebook users where they basically put negative or positive stories onto people's feeds, you know, and, and I think it was basically from their friends, so it wasn't from someone they didn't know, but they put up, they, they, they had some maybe algorithm, I don't know if they had someone doing this manually or they had some algorithm to do it, but hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. got stories that were either positive or negative uh, that they wouldn't usually get necessarily, and then they tracked those users to see how they responded. Mm to those and they basically come up with the amazing conclusion that when people see negative stories they tend to post negative stories or if they get positive stories on the newsfeed they tend to post other positive stories rocket I mean, science yeah rocket science but this is the kind of money that they're wasting on right. these, kind of, these kind of research but it's all part I mean I thought it was an interesting tie in with the DOD doing this kind of similar research right. and then Facebook supposedly just does it because Facebook wants to do its own research I'm pretty sure that was part of a government funded a DOD right. funded operation sure uh, that Facebook didn't admit to, you know. Right. Um, so they're really concerned about, uh, you know, you know, social media and people getting all kind of uh, worked up on, on Facebook uh, and, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of or millions of people on Facebook all suddenly getting the same idea and going right. out in the street and right. saying, let's take back the government or something. That's you know? a, they're crapping themselves. Huh? That's a massive fear for them. Yeah. That's just why they have these MRAPs. That's why they militarize the police right now. And, you know, there's all these people have been warning about, like, oh, all these uh, abandoned Walmarts and stuff like that are going to be used as concentration camps and so on and so forth. I mean, it's just, it's a, it, it's a trajectory that things could be heading on right now. And I think the elites do see that. But I think in a certain sense that they have actually created that reality. Yeah. Um, they have created a situation where there's going to be this huge, huge mass of uh, massive underclass that can't help but 
try to organize itself to get basically food and, and shelter and, and, and clothes and just basic living necessities. And um, the simple solution is to ensure that everybody has a minimum quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, why they don't do that really is kind of beyond me. It's totally illogical. They're too greedy. Yeah, but still, I mean, they have more than, I mean, they can, they never can have, have all. They <laughs> exactly, never have they enough. can never have enough. But it's totally it's illogical. A it is going, it's a sickness. It's a, it's a massive infection in, in the power elite of the world. Yeah, and it's, going to, it's, a, it's a sickness that's going to destroy uh, human society ultimately because right. they're the ones in control. They're the ones who right. are making policies yeah. and, you know, essentially controlling the lives of, of pretty much everybody right. by the policies they enforce and by uh, enforcing in the form of these militarized police where people have no choice and they're going to push people against the wall eventually, push the backs against the wall where people will be forced to act right. and then they'll turn around and say, well, you know, we've got to send in the, the National Guard or, you know, the SWAT teams and stuff because, you know, people are just, People do this because they're just kind of crazy. People are naturally kind of like, you know, reactive and weird. And now and again, they just go crazy over stuff. Right. When the truth is they've been tormented and, and, and set up to, be, right. to, to react in this way over a long period of time. Let me just uh, see if we can go to a call here. Hi, do we have a call on the line? Hello, caller. Are you, are you talking to me? Yeah, are you, are you, are you calling or just listening? Oh, I was listening, but uh, it's fascinating. I live in New York, so I, I know what you're talking about. But this is JP from New York. So. Hey, Jay. The infamous NYPD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 they're great. Um, what's, your, what's your experience of it? Well, you know, I get the experience of it every single day I ride on, uh, on the subway or I take transit trains, uh, you know, and uh, I see it every day. Like, I saw out at... Uh, on the island, I was watching this last week. Uh, three big hulking police officers, like literally twisting around this ten-year-old kid. His arms are just skinny, and yelling at him and screaming at him. And I'm thinking, no, this isn't necessary. But mm-hmm. you know, you see something like that frequently. And then there's the constant when you're on the subway. There's the constant announcement. You know, you get the constant announcement. If you see something, say something. There's posters everywhere. And people really don't, you know, they sort of sit there in a blasé manner. And, and you know, I'll mm. hear, hear four of them on the way in from Brooklyn into Manhattan. And it's it's just very oppressive. I mean, you get very conscious of carrying a backpack, of carrying anything. Uh, and you look around and people start looking at each other, you know, and looking at the packages that they have. And, you know, it never used to be that way. And it wasn't even necessary. Um, yeah. Or, you know, it's just not. And I rode New Jersey Transit, the same thing. And the conductors are acting like uh, police officers and threatening you. And, you know, you stand up and they look at you and go, what's your problem? And I'm like, well, I don't have a problem. I'm just going to look at the map. Uh, you know, there's no problem here, you know. Everyone acts like a threatening, aggressive manner. Yeah. But, you know, most of it is just, you know, it's great to hear your voices. Thanks so much for everything you're doing. And it really, uh, you know, I just, I need to listen and absorb a lot more of what you're saying, I think, more than anything else. So. Awesome. All right. What was your name again? JP, did you say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Joseph Patrick. <laughs> okay, Joseph Patrick. All right, listen, thanks for your call. That's, thanks, uh, JP. That's great. Bye-bye, JP. Yeah. Take it easy. Bye.
I would like to go back to a point that was mentioned by Neil, saying that uh, now the SWAT teams are allowed to loot properties. And that's very reminiscent of the way armies were, armies or group of marauders or mercenaries were operating during the Roman Empire uh, on both sides, on the barbaric side and on, on the Roman side, where basically you had emperor wannabes who had to get power. In order to get power, they had to have a, a strong army, and most of the time they didn't have enough money, so they were promising the mercenaries to loot the properties, get slaves, rape the woman, and uh, destroy and pH um, everything, basically. What is interesting, though, is uh, what Neil mentioned later in his quote, is that the SWAT teams might tend to choose for properties that are more wealthy. And that's a slippery slope, those group of mercenaries that are only animated by uh, greed. Mm. Because uh, one day they might realize where the wealth is. And it might be a weapon that we can backfires. Only <laughs> we can only hope. Mm. Well, that's what Machiavelli said about mercenaries, that ultimately, I mean, there's, there's two types of mercenaries. Yeah. You are either ruined by their incompetence because they suck, or you are betrayed by their uh, competence mm. because they are so greedy and uh, avaricious that they'll turn on you and loot you as well. And we can only hope that that happens to them because it would serve the economic elite right to be the victims of their own instruments of everyone else's destruction as well. Yeah, just getting back to what, uh, what I've been harping on about, which is that, you know, they're, they seem to be aware that stuff is, <clears throat> something's coming down the line, and whether or not they've prepared for this consciously, <clears throat> prepared for civil unrest as a result of climate change, etc., or whether it's just a natural function of an insane society and it all seems to come together in some bizarre grand conspiracy projected from a higher plane of existence, something like that. I don't know, but it's very weird. <clears throat> but the point being that back in 2004, there's an article, there was an article in the, uh, in the Guardian or the Observer. This is, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, the title is, Now the Pentagon Tells Bush Climate Change Will Destroy Us. This was a secret report uh, warning of rioting and nuclear war. Okay, they went, they went to nuclear war, but they basically talked about climate change as, uh, being the precipitating mass social unrest in 2004. And this was the Pentagon writing a report or commissioned to write a report for the Bush government at the time. And um, so it seems they've been aware of this for a long time. Uh, there's, I'll just play a little clip here from uh, something from 2011, but there's been many of these kind of uh, reports over the, over the past 10 years, which point in this direction that the powers that be are very concerned about civil unrest, mass civil unrest, being provoked by, you know, for want of a better term, climate change and all of the different effects, food shortages, you know, water shortages, water wars, etc., you know, or just, uh, you know, devastation of, of large parts of the country by a major hurricane or tornadoes, whatever. Just listen to this report here. Crash of 2008, the Defense Intelligence Establishment has really been paying a lot of attention to global markets and how they could serve as a threat to U.S. national security interests. At one upcoming seminar that we're going to see here next month, they're taking a look at a lot of the issues that might be really familiar to CNBC viewers. Take a look at some of the Pentagon's key concerns here. They're looking at the use of sovereign wealth funds to manipulate markets and currencies. They're looking at nation-state economic collapse, sovereign default, and nation-state instability. And they're also working 
worried about U.S. allies' budgets, deficits, and national security infrastructures. And in the Army, they're having a very interesting year-long exercise called Unified Quest 2011. And in that wargaming series, they're looking at the implications of large-scale economic breakdown inside the United States that would force the Army to keep, quote, domestic order among civil unrest and force the Army to deal with fragmented global power and drastically lower budgets. This according to the trade publication InsideDefense.com. And in October, military officials from the Marine Corps War Colleges visited the trading floor of J.P. Morgan to study markets and the economy. So, Tyler, you can see that all different parts of the Pentagon and Defense Intelligence Establishment are looking at markets and looking at ways they can present a new kind of threat to the United States. These are the guys whose job it is to think about the very worst possible things that could happen, and they've dreamed up some very scary scenarios here. All right, Amos. Yeah, uh, J.P. Morgan is the one to ask about yeah, exactly. what's coming. They're looking for the very worst possible uh, scenarios, which apparently involve having to sick the military on the civilian population. You know, so this is them, you know, trying to well, prepare for that event. And for them, it's the worst case scenario in the sense that people might rise up and, and unseat them. So they're, it's not that, oh, my God, we might have to shoot like, you know, hundreds of thousands of American civilians. It's like... Uh, Let's put that into our plan so that we can maintain the status quo. Like right. killing the people or sending, sicking the military right. on the population isn't the problem. That's not the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is the people rising up for whatever reason. Right. It's the mob, you know. Well, there's this kind of unthinking presupposition that civil unrest is some sort of like, I don't know, random out of left field disease that we have to simply Zombie apocalypse. Out. It's uh, civil unrest. It's it's terrible, and no one ever. Why are they unrest? Exactly. Yeah. You know why are they doing it? And you know, no one ever stops a second. Why do you think that they're going to do it? Oh, because we've been raping and pillaging and extorting and enslaving and oppressing them and have forced them into abject poverty. And at a certain point, we're going to remove all, you know, economic support from the underclasses, and they're going to be left to starve in the streets. And it's like, yeah, well, I mean, I'd be unrested too. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't like, uh, well, not that I don't like it, but Gustave Le Bon's, uh, the crowd kind of, it tends to be a bit down on uh, the nature of the crowd, you know, rather than looking at, I mean, a crowd doesn't necessarily just rise up and become this mindless machine that destroys society for no good reason. Right. But he doesn't really uh, kind of point that out. And, uh, you know, his general thesis is that this is a bad thing. And yeah, it's a bad thing, but that's not the source of the problem. Well, he was writing yeah. from the class that they would exactly. be arrested against, yeah. right? You know, he was writing from the educated man mm -hmm. of letters uh, upper class. Mm -hmm. It's a gentleman's story to yeah. some extent. In yeah. the first part of yeah. his book, he's true. He has this kind of bias. In the second part of the book, he's more balanced. He doesn't describe it as necessarily negative. He say it's open. It can be very positive. It can be very negative. And he doesn't say there's no cause. He <laughs> said that, uh, that like Rodney King event is a good example of pictures, symbols, and principles acquired during previous generation that infuse for years and years in the unconscious mind <laughs> are the main motivators of the crowd behavior. But they're not. That's, that's my point. The point, and that's a, negative, that's a negative representation of it. Generally speaking, a crowd will rise up because a crowd is being abused. Yeah. A crowd will not. Yeah. And it's not about you know, you know, some, kind of, uh, <clears throat> some kind of natural or innate kind of tendency of, of, of human beings to be programmed with uh, previous you know, beliefs and stuff like that. I mean, that happens now and again. But generally speaking, over the course of human history, ordinary people have risen up and led to mindless 
that has led to mindless civil kind of unrest and destruction. Uh, but the reason they did it, generally speaking, was because they were being abused by the power that be, powers that be. Yeah, yeah, well, it's not incompatible. In um, what is stressed the most is that it's not called analysis that would motivate the insurrection of crowds. It would be symbols, emotions, pictures. But those symbols, emotions, and pictures can be uh, definitely related to what you're saying, to abuses. Rodney King is an example of one picture. I mean, there's been police abuses for endless time. Numerous of one analyzed, described logically. He never triggered any massive reaction like the LA riots. LA riots, you have one picture or a footage that triggers the, the whole LA area, becomes a, a land of civil war. Mm-hmm. So it's not mutually exclusive. Well, it, it, yeah, it's not. It's not the, my, my point is that the way he focused on it was, it was not uh, an accurate representation of, of what the genesis or the cause of it was. In the case of Rodney King, it wasn't an image. To describe it as an image, that these people were provoked by an image, it wasn't. The people were pro- feeling injustice in, in, in their bones. They saw someone b- being uh, treated extremely unjustly, and that's what caused them to riot, not an image. It was conveyed oh, by an image, for sure, spot, but calling it an image was... An, and, it depends on how you define image here is the problem. Uh, we're talking about like an iconic and archetypal situation. True. The archetypal situation that happened for the Rodney King was, was the officers by a magistrate being declared completely free. Basically, they basically somebody uh, being above the law, basically somebody getting away with injustice, somebody who was doing something. It was mm-hmm. so obvious, and the evidence yeah. was in front of everybody's yeah. face. It, it wasn't the images that set people mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. It was the court decision, mm. which was injustice, which, was which an they article. followed the logic of the, the fun- court, and then they went, no, that's illogical. So my point is that fundamentally the crowd in that situation when it reacts is far more humane and acting from a far more uh, humane Absolutely. point of view Absolutely. than the people... And intelligent than, than point the, of view. Exactly, and the, than the people right. who created the situation, right. because the people who create the situation are the ones who meet out the injustice right. and are and, and in, in an inhuman way. Right. Uh, I think I might have a call here. Right. Let me just go there. Hi, do we have a call on the line? Yeah, hi, this is uh, Kent from West Virginia. Hey, Kent, welcome to the show. Hi, Kent. Yeah, a couple of things... Um, you were talking about um, the MRAPs. Um, I drive around through the um, rural areas of West Virginia here quite a bit, and I'm always astonished about how, you know, this sort of modest farm around, you know, various modest farms, and you'll see so many old um, bulldozers out in the field just sort of rusting away, and I know that um, that's um, some farmer who's, picked up a bulldozer third or fourth and cheap and it ran away to got it because he, he drove it there and it's it's died and it's too expensive to repair can't be repaired and i'm kind of hoping that these mraps with these all this um, built-in um, high maintenance military stuff will just sort of um, eventually rust away maybe yeah, in these yeah. police places and um uh, Another thing is, I've, I, I think uh, I've often thought that uh, the, um, the the Met, the London Metropolitan Police, I believe, is the the, the first police force in the world, and it's only dated from the mid 1800s, and uh, coinciding with the Industrial Revolution, and I think that's when uh, 
all the um, all the workers left the fields and went into the factories. And uh, mm-hmm. I've often thought that the uh, the workers who uh, the lowest of the low are the workers that couldn't be trained to be factory workers. You know the the ones that would uh, swing and swing hacks or something like that. Maybe they mm-hmm. went into the police force. That's been my musing. That you know. So, um, mm. And uh, and Joe Nile, I know. Uh, I lived in Ireland um, uh, for a few years, several decades ago, and uh, that's a that's a country that is really uh, very, uh, very, uh, very much in love with their police. I was always amazed. I, I lived in Dublin, and I was working, and everybody and his brother knew somebody who was in the branch, or you know, they mm-hmm. had cousins in the branch, brothers in the branch, and uh, I, um, I was. Uh, experienced that, and it wasn't very pleasant. And uh, uh, so, but uh, that's pretty much, you know. And uh, uh, I came back to this country, and there was an Irish girl living up up in an adjoining town, you know. And one of the um, local hillbillies was talking about her and says, "Oh, and uh, she's got a brother in the branch." And she was mm-hmm. over here bragging about her brother in the branch of this hill, but mm-hmm. you know, and if you told him well, that was like well, he's like an FBI agent, and he was oh, you know, so so I thought this was pretty. Mean. And the guy that called him from New York, I don't know whether what it is now, but the um, the little little fellow in charge up there used to be a guy named uh, what's his name, Raymond Kelly or something. So, so mm-hmm. I'm not picking on you, but uh, that's uh, all right. Yeah, it's we can take it's it. it's it's. Uh, it's um, you know, it's pretty unpleasant being on the receiving end of that, you know. And yeah. So, but uh, I don't know what you know. I don't know what you can do about it. But uh, it's um, uh, it's it just getting worse and worse, you know. Yeah, but, stay out of harm's way, you know. Is, is the only yeah. thing you can do about it. Yeah. Well, I just all I wanted to do was to, um, go from where I'm a flat and go out into the pubs and have a few pints. But they had, you know, they had people. They were paying people to go sit in the sit in the pubs and uh, you know and dream up stuff. To uh, <laughs> I did everything. I'm telling you, for somebody who's only had a speeding ticket or two, I did. I mean, uh, um, Al Capone didn't have a rap sheet as long as I did. What they thought I had done and everything. So I mean, so it was pretty amazing. Oh, yeah? so, wow. So, so well, you I'm doing the show and I'll let you go. Okay. You should write a book Thanks. about it. It sounds interesting. I should. Yeah, they always should tell me write a book, and I thought, well, they don't. I don't think I'll write that book. I like to be short. I mean, one. it was. Yeah, yeah. It was a nice experience. You know, we really loved it there. And then, and then I realized that the the people. You know, I expect people to make you un- uncomfortable, but I found out who was making me uncomfortable. I says, well, okay, well, I'm leaving. So, so. but anyway, it's a lovely country. I don't, you know, so. But that's. It's, I'm sure it happens to immigrants in this country, too. So. Well, thanks a lot. All right, Ken. Thanks for your call. Take care. Well, Thank mean, you. What he says is kind of like what I was saying at the beginning about how uh, uh, basically the police force or the modern police force is kind of created as this uh, uh, keeping public order to allow business and, and the beginning of the industrial sort of revolution was kind of like created the need for the police to basically keep the man down. Here's a little quote, and this is from Border and Rice in 1967, these people were writing. So, I mean, this is very old ideas here being talked about. We're not talking about a modern writer. Um, So he says, uh, because the police were primarily engaged in enforcing public order laws against gambling and drunkenness, 
surveilling immigrants and freed slaves and harassing labor organizers, public opinion favored restrictions on the use of force. But the value of armed paramilitary presence authorized to use indeed deadly force served the interests of local economic elites who had wanted organized police departments in the first place. The presence of a paramilitary force occupying the streets was regarded as essential because such organizations intervened between the propertyed elites and propertyless masses who were regarded as politically dangerous as a class. I mean, so, I mean, this has kind of been something that has been understood from the very beginning that the police were, were in a certain sense, created specifically for what they did to the Occupy Wall Street movement. A lot of people see that as uh, this sort of unusual police power, but actually they were created for that specific purpose. They were created to prevent, at the time, what were called riots, um, which is probably the kind of mechanisms that the, the guy in the crowd is writing about, which later became organized union strikes because police were mostly basically union busters. Mm-hmm. And then later on to justify them, especially because the federal government got in and said, hey, this is a great idea. Let's create state police and federal police and all this different stuff. And because they created this bureaucratic institution that wanted to get more power for itself, it began to justify its existence mm. by investigating other types of crime. And then with the people who were like, hey, you guys are brutalizing us. What's this all about? They said, oh, wait, hold on a minute. No, we investigate the crimes here and there and the little drug ones, the little murders here and there. But originally the police and their main purpose has always been the enforcement of social order above law. And that means Mm -hmm. strike breaking, Mm -hmm. riot breaking, protest busting. They are fundamentally an anti-constitutional for America organization in America specifically talking about in America. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of uh, (laughs) the Occupy Wall Street thing has many uh, parallels throughout uh, history, both in Europe and, and the U.S., it reminds me of uh, the Ludlow massacre in in 19, uh, 1914 in Colorado, uh, when it was a it was a, a strike at a, a John D. Rockefeller Jr. owned mine, and um, there were 1,200 striking coal miners, and the families had set up tents and stuff because of horrible conditions and extremely yeah. low pay, so they Rockefeller got the the Colorado National Guard called in and some, you know, kind of mercenary types, you know, um, camp guards to come in and uh, burn them down and, you know, they open fire and stuff and kill 20 people, you know. So, I mean, and what Kent was just saying about how, you know, the Met Police was created at around the time of the, uh, the Metropolitan Police created around the time of the Industrial Revolution when it was kind of getting going. I mean, people came in off fields and stuff, a lot of them in the cities, uh, but at least when they were working in the fields and had their own little plot of land, they could, uh, you know, provide for themselves and their families. But they were brought from those right. into uh, the cities, into factories, where they were now working in a kind of a, a strange version of a field. But it wasn't theirs. Someone else owned it. Right. And they got pittance for a day's work. Right. That wasn't enough to feed themselves. So it was a right. really shitty uh, deal compared to what they had before. Right. So you had, like you said, you had a lot of strikes. And... Uh, and these were the, the captains of industry in league with the politicians at the time right. who said, this can't, this can't happen. Uh, let's get the cops in. To, let's get somebody in to do something about this. Let, so. let's, well, at that time, they were, they were, like you were saying, hiring mercenaries. They were hiring these kind of private security companies, these Pinkerton-type individuals. But that was really costly to them. And they found a way, basically, to offload the cost of their personal security. So basically, I mean, in a certain sense, 
the 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 middle and lower classes who are the the people who are pursued most for taxes they are essentially paying for bodyguards for elite property owners i mean that's basically what the police are the police are there to represent the 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 upper class property individuals mm-hmm. And we pay for their bodyguards. We pay for the oppression that we receive. Mm. And I mean, in, in the meantime, when they're not actually defending the interests of the elite <laughs> class, uh, like in Occupy Wall Street or any other situation, similar situation, uh, it may happen that they do some good here and there in terms of uh, protecting local small. communities. But generally speaking, as we're saying, increasingly over the past number of years, they're doing. Uh, they're not helping anyone. They're they're abusing the community. People are afraid to go near the police. They're they're projecting this aura of fear on the general population. You're being watched, being looked at. The guy um, JP from New York talked about just, I mean, carrying a backpack on a train, and you're sitting there wondering. You're you're in a state of anxiety because uh, you stand up with his backpack, and people are like, "Where's he going? What's he going right. to do with that backpack?" And, of course, this all ties in with the whole war on terror nonsense, you know, and Muslim terrorism that we talked about last week. But <laughs> And I think that the illusion, this veneer that's been maintained of this depicting the police as a helping and protecting the population has been prevailing for a while. And even inside the police forces, you have some police officers who believe this lie and who join the police forces to accomplish this mission. Right. But this population is shrinking and shrinking with a undergoing uh, polarization and right now in the US it seems that the the veneer of protecting the citizen is not uh, necessary anymore and the my uh, I have this article from 2005 it was almost 10 years ago where the Supreme Court ruled that police do not have a constitutional duty to protect someone well that's the case uh, I won't describe the details uh, a woman calling uh, uh, there was a court order against a violent husband who had to stay away from the house of the wife, and the wife called the police because the, the the guy was the husband was coming. He kidnapped the three kid, kids and he killed them. And the police didn't react, didn't do anything. So she sued the state, not complying to this uh, warrant arrest against the, the husband. And Supreme Court said, no, protecting citizen is not a constitutional duty. So it's here, black well, and white. The police have no constitutional uh, mandate. They have, no, they have nothing to do with the Constitution at all, except in, the fa- in their capacity as government employees that may violate the Constitution. They are they're basically interpreting the letter of the law against the spirit of the law in a certain sense. Yeah. But it's important for people to understand that the police did not exist when the Constitution was written. They have no constitutional mandate whatsoever. And, and on, on, on the other topic, um, the effectiveness of police, I think, is highly overrated. I think that, well, first of all, the police in, say, for instance, like the U.K. have recently been found to be falsifying the statistics for their, their success rate by actually concealing and not recording cases, just making them disappear. 900,000 cases just make them disappear so that they don't have to look bad. Um, because they, I mean, like the Miami police has something like a, an objective 20% solve rate for violent crimes. I mean, television, movies, books, you know, like Agatha Christie and all of these so whodunit type of things, they pre- present this image of the police as trying yeah. to solve murders, trying to solve these little crimes. TV shows are made about it, and you see the CSI and all this different stuff. And it's all propaganda to make the police look like they are effective 
against crime and that crime is just some sort of grotesque, monstrous, every day people are walking down the streets and any minute you could be mugged if it weren't for those police officers who arrested them. It's a ridiculous, the world is a super dangerous place where there's a mugger around mm. every single corner. There is crime for sure, but the police have never been effective against it. The only fact- thing... The genesis or the source of that crime uh, is, very often. is very often either the police themselves or society and the way it's structured and the abuses that, it, that, that exist in society. I mean, that's not looked at. It's right. just, yeah, they just see it as they don't, they don't take any responsibility right. for their part in it. They just beat the results down with a, the result of it down with a, with a big stick, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah there, there, there seem to be two causes to violence. A, injustice. Why not? When a citizen starves to death, he might steal bread. It's because he does a crime. I don't think it's a crime on a moral level or ethical level. The other fuel for violence is violence itself. Violence brings violence. So it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And you have all those now ultra-violent cops yeah. in the U.S. who bring somehow violence. In the U.S., I suppose a lot of citizens today are carrying guns because of this fear instilled by the elites and by the cops. So it's a, well, it's a created uh, ex-need of violence. Themselves. They yeah. wanted to justify themselves by presenting an image of the world as being filled with these mindless, drug-slinging gangbangers driving down the street willy-nilly, killing everybody in sight in this horrible, horrible situation. And it's a, it's a fundamental, hysterical misrepresentation of reality. They act like this epidemic of crime, they are the only people holding back the tides mm-hmm. of the, the, cri- the, the criminal element. And it's a modified version of what was originally there of this congenitally criminal class of individuals, that they are somehow inferior and they're just criminals and they're going to go around and if it weren't for the police protecting well, law and order. Here's an example. I'll just play a clip here of a recent uh, police raid in the U.S., uh, the details, you'll, you'll, you'll understand the details from the, from the audio. If you've looked around the streets of your own hometown and maybe you've seen stuff that looks like it came out of a war zone, well, get used to it. A new report by the ACLU finds that police forces throughout the U.S. are arming their law enforcement agents with <coughs> weapons and tactics of war. Weapons and equipment that's specifically designed for the war zone is flooding in to local police, and so when they have it, they're going to want to use it. When police officers are looking like cops, I'm sorry, looking like soldiers, acting like soldiers, they're going to start to see everyone around them as an enemy instead of people to protect and to serve, and so that sort of keeps the cycle going of violence. And what we've seen is that specifically through this 1033 program, which that's the Department of Defense program that transfers uh, weapons and uh, vehicles and all this equipment to police departments for free, this is reaching every state. All 50 states, four U.S. territories, almost $5 billion worth of equipment has been handed out since this program was enacted. Uh, We see that no one is really safe from this. Video we rarely see, Fort Worth police on camera raiding a drug house. But tonight, a family says this video raises questions about the death of a man inside. Police used a taser on Jermaine Darton during that raid last May. He died, records show, of natural causes. But his family says his civil rights were violated. Yeah, so that was innocent where, I mean, they said they found drugs. I think they found some pot uh, under a bed. 
but they broke in and you, you heard the way they broke in and they take, I mean, there was a family you know, and children all forced to lie on the ground and yeah. being screamed at and the, the father who in the video you see the father was just kind of like, he wasn't doing anything, he was just kind of lying there and they tased him twice and he had asthma <clears throat> and he suffocated and died. Yeah. And they said uh, he died of natural causes. Well, and yeah, it's, it's a very pervert phenomenon, this uh, drug on war. Or this uh, war on drugs, sorry. Uh, you see, the main drug business is operated by the CIA and other agencies, which is flooding the US with highly destructive and addictive drugs. People are offered drugs by those agencies, at this end directly, because also of the social inequalities. There is a level of desperation, of depression, that push to drug consumption. And that's due to the elite, to the CIA and other agencies too. Right. So they create the material condition providing drug and the social condition, desperation, to maximize the drug use. Then they penalize the drug use. In several countries, right. using drug is not a crime. It's only dealing drug. Right. But in the US, having drug or using drug is a crime. So they will end up brutalizing and putting in jail the poor citizen that they condemned first to poverty, desperation, and they took the little money he has, yeah. giving him drugs. It's, uh, it's the no escape theory of sadism, which is that it's much more fun to torture people when you take away any possibility of them escaping, you see? They, they want to take everything away from them. And, and so they, they take from from a sort of macro... Uh, a macro metaphysical kind of perspective. I don't know if they actually think that specifically. But. Speaking of the macro, there's a quote in Ponerology that I've, I've always wondered about where Lobachevsky describes the situation where a state of pathocracy reaches a 100% saturation in which all psychoph- psychopaths I think we can extend that beyond also to your hardcore authoritarians will inevitably end up in the employ of a structure that is used against the normal population. Um, Natural, foreseen, who knows? Let's say it's somewhere in the middle there. Especially in, in the U.S., the U.S. is amazing at incentivizing anything that they see some potential for making money in. And when you look at how, especially since 9-11, this, what was formerly the military-industrial complex has just extended into the security complex. It has, it's the most amazing expression of incentivizing totalitarianism. Natural or programmed or whatever, it is, is very efficient at drawing in anyone of the right mindset right. to to be used functionally for this for this overall structure. Well, and but it, 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 at this point, it's not even crimes that, are, that they don't even pretend to be going after crimes anymore. Most of what their keep busy work now is is producing low-level doses of terror on a regular basis, right. mm-hmm. ostensibly to acclimatize people to the horror actual terror ever being carried out. It never 
does actually happen that way. Right. They had 9/11, nothing since. Mm. Well, it's, a, it's it's the it's the paradox. It's it's a joke because what they're doing, as you're saying, is uh, is acclimatizing people to uh, to essentially accepting a totalitarian uh, state society uh, on the basis of uh, protecting them from that ever happening. I mean, it's a, it's just such a joke, you know. I mean, that's what they scare people right. with. They say. If we don't do it, these Muslims don't want to come into our country, yeah, they want to come into our country and set up a, 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 Sharia. a, a Sharia law kind of caliphate in the U.S. or something. They want to spread Sharia law. They want to dominate our society and, and kill all the Christians, whatever. So we're going to protect you from that kind of totalitarian kind of regime overtaking the country by imposing a totalitarian regime on the country. Yeah. And it, it's, it's so got, transparent, you know, but well, so many people can't see to, it. It's got to the point where... Um, I have an article here about a school in Missouri recently went under its 13th active shooter training drill in the school in the past year. That is 13 days of this school's life in one year were taken out to do active shooter drills. Oh, yeah, actually, we've got a clip of, of some of the students' testimony after. You think you know what's going to happen, but you don't. And then I saw the gunman like right in front of me, and I stopped, and I meant to run. The adrenaline gets you. But I was kind of frozen in my spot, and he shot me, and I was like, I died, so. I start to think, what if this would happen? I start to think, like, I'm not going to try to save my best friend. I'm going to try to save myself. And... The gunman came in, killed Jacob, and took me. Come here. Come here. Come with me. Come here. And I had to go down to, in the hallway and try to open the no. door. Don't open the door. Open the door! Acting innocent so that we could get in and he could kill the people. And then I got up and I walked out into the middle of the cafeteria and I just started, I just looked down and I see people just laying there. It could be your brother, it could be your best friend, it could even be your enemy, but either way, you're still going to think, like, what if that was you? With all the shootings that have been going on, it's, it's good to be prepared, just in case. It's eye-opening, definitely for the students. I know a lot of my friends got scared. Some teachers told me their doors wouldn't lock, and they were scared. I was just thinking of places I would hide or run if in the scenario that had ever happened. I couldn't think of any. It makes you think this could happen. This is my first time and I would definitely do it again. This is my 10th one. So, but the weird thing is it gets me every time. School ain't what it used to be. Just think, this one school has had that 13 times in the last year. And, I mean, we, we talked... But, but I should add, they, they go through the whole rig. They, the, day be, the day before, they have teams of makeup artists come in and prep them. And then on the day itself, they all queue up and they get makeup, the kids, of gunshot wounds to the head, mm -hmm. to the heart. And then some of them are prone out on the floor. Some of them will play roles. And they have these big guys come in, full SWAT gear, play the role of shooters. 
or rescuers. Yeah, I mean, just and think about what those those students were saying there. It makes you think, and this could happen to me. It could happen to my brother. But it they're more you think likely to get shot think. by a cop. Well, exactly. But they're, they're, I mean, these these kids are being just being drilled literally into right. them, uh, literally and figuratively into them. Um, and for people who listened to our show last week, we explained. I mean, the reason they're doing this is because of these school shootings and other mass shooting events, and we discussed all those on last week's show. If you want to get the lowdown on those, when you realize uh, the likelihood that those were essentially, you know, manipulated or false flag attacks, then you see this as the result, where the direct result on people, where it's not just the general uh, fear and terror and the kind of mourning or that happens after the shooting, like with Sandy Hook, but they put these kind of drills in place across the country where it's reinforced over and over again, years after the event, so that kids going to school are thinking all the time that this might happen to me, you know, this might be my brother. I mean, yeah. it's horrible. Sometimes they, don't actually, sometimes they don't actually arrange it with the school district. Yeah. A SWAT team will descend on the school and start opening fire, and it's only after a few minutes that the teachers realize they're firing blanks. Right. But those minutes are they are as terrified as if it's happening. And Can I read a little? And this is this is allowed. This is very pertinent to what we're basically being saying. It's from Bob Altemeyer in his book The Authoritarians, and he's saying that authoritarian followers score highly on the dangerous world scale, and it's not just because some of the items have religious context. High right wing authoritarians are, in general, more afraid than most people are. And he says, sometimes it's all rather predictable. Authoritarians' parents taught fear of homosexuals, radicals, atheists, and pornographers, but they also warned the children more than most parents did about kidnappers, reckless drivers, bullies, drunks, bad guys, who would seem to threaten everyone's children. So authoritarian followers, when growing up, probably lived in a scarier world than most kids do, with a lot more boogeymen hiding in dark places, and they're still scared as adults. For them, gay marriage and blah, 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 and he says how basically that one theory of why authoritarian followers are the way they are is that as children, authoritarian parents tend to instill in them a constant droning fear of everything around them. The world is dangerous, either in a religious context, it's the sinners, it's the homosexuals, blah, blah, blah. God's going to destroy us like he did Sodom and Gomorrah unless we fight these you know, homosexuals and sinners, or it's kidnappers and boogeymen and bullies of all various kinds. So in a certain sense, this type of situation of going in and scaring kids this way is teaching them to be afraid of everything and putting them into a situation where they will probably become authoritarian mm-hmm. followers because they will be so terrified. They'll look to authority faith. for protection. Yeah. Look to authority for, for protection. And that's why the, the, the students are asking for, basically, they say, yeah, this dude was uh, an eye-opener. And uh, it reminds me of this quote that I paraphrase here. It's... Uh, mm-hmm the ones who are willing to sacrifice their freedom for safety. We can neither. And uh, <clears throat> there are, I don't think it's random chance that the authorities are focusing on, <clears throat> excuse me, on young population. You're, when you're young, you're still uh, impressable, you're still uh, imprintable to some extent, and uh, basically they're manufacturing a generation of authoritarian followers controlled by fear and asking asking for a totalitarian regime. To protect them from ambiguous evils that are, are just plain and simply statistically improbable. I mean, 
kids are more likely to, to die of an allergic reaction to a pharmaceutical drug than they are to die in a school shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more likely to get shot by the police when not committing a crime, just walking away, um, than they are to get killed by a crazy school shooter. Well, it's, it's a horrible thing is that people are being manipulated by fear. And you can't blame people for being manipulated by fear because it's not just some right. crass, phony fear. They are actually going into schools and shooting people. And mind programming, as we discussed in last week's show, mind programming various people into going and carrying out these mass shootings. <clears throat> they did actually go ahead and, you know, carry out a, a, t- a terror attack, in quotes, on 9-11. And that was the big one that, that was the precedent. That's, the, that's the, uh, the base from which everything else has been formed, you know. And... Um, but it's horrible, and it takes it takes someone uh, it would take someone who's able to get over that fear-based reaction, or to right. at least conquer it a little bit, and, see, and use their, their kind of logic and their intellect to right. see and to go there, go to the point of saying, "Yeah, this seems a bit manipulated." Uh, you know, I mean, there's something not quite right about it. At least go that far, <clears throat> and for me, that's the that's really the best, and maybe not the best, but it's really the only protection that people can have against this kind of thing is to inform yourself about it and uh, to think about it and to look at it objectively and not give in to the fear-mongering and the, the emotional manipulation because that's essentially the entire world is being emotionally manipulated right. uh, or at least the Western world, as it's called, is being, has been emotionally manipulated up the wazoo for, 14, for 13 years, you know? And uh, <laughs> people need to get a grip, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, because it's not it's not doing anybody any good, and we're all staring over the precipice at this point. Well, they, they say that there's nothing to fear but fear itself, and that is kind of the truth. Because um, in those types of situations, you never really know, you know, how you're going to react or, or or how you're going to be. Fear is is unfortunately completely and totally immune to reason of any kind. Mm-hmm. In the moment, um, yeah. And that's really kind of an unfortunate thing, which is why I think The Crowd actually is a positive book, because it does say that it's kind of a defense of networking with people and communities, that when people get into a, a kind of a resonance with each other in a large group, that they can fight that fear much easier when they sort of give over their normal reactions. So in the case of a large group of people in a community or a network, they can sort of allow the the least fear-based people in that group to motivate their actions. Mm-hmm. At least we would hope that that would happen. And that kind of seems to be, in my opinion, the only defense. And why so much effort is put into uh, collapsing any and all popular movements to destroying them, obliterate them, to to demonize any kind of alternative groups, alternative communities, because they know that it is the, the single weapon against uh, what they're doing. The mind programming. Fear training, mind programming, because they know that when people get involved in a group, then they act like a unit. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like an insect colony going mm-hmm. after a wasp or something that they, they no longer have that fear. They can come to, come to a more objective view of the situation rather than <laughs> one the person. They have the possibility of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's ironic. They, they fear, the one thing they fear is people being of one mind. Mm-hmm. And so they work very, very hard to get everyone of one mind, but of their mind. Yes, in a particular direction, yeah. So they use that proclivity that could help people against them, essentially. Yeah. Right. Well... I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. We're reaching the top of the hour. Um, 
Or maybe a, a little message of hope before before we, we cut. Um, I saw this video on YouTube. We talk about the chasm between people. There will be choice to be made, fight, or flight, or think. Or, and there will be also a choice to be made by police forces. And it's not going in the right direction, but you have this video of this protest in Italy. Massive protest. protest. And you see you have this uh, confrontation or face-to-face -face between demonstrators and police officers. And uh, after a while, you see the police officers that remove their helmet, they remove their weapons, they drop them on the floor, and they join the demonstrators. Because one weakness in a psychopathic mind is this indiscriminate greed that it's oppression to everybody. And a lot of police officers in many countries are like you and me. They're oppressed. The shitty job with a crappy wage and crappy living condition. Some don't see it, some might see it, and when the confrontation happens, people will have to shoot aside. Mm. Well, maybe that's a, that's a possibility, but I wouldn't recommend anybody uh, count on that happening. And if you see a line of policemen, uh, walk, the walk, walk the other direction or run the other direction, as a general rule. Be careful, they'll shoot you while running away. Just don't be invested. Don't be invested in the world changing for the better, you know? Just change yourself for the better. Anyway, yeah, we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, thanks to our callers, um, to Kent and JP. Thanks to our chatters and to all of our listeners, of course. We'll be, uh, we will be back next week with another show, uh, as yet to be decided or determined. We've got so many irons in the fire, it's just crazy, you know. <laughs> so uh, we work very hard. Anyway, uh, yeah, have a good one, folks, and we will be back next week, like I said. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.